Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 181. The Drabblecast is a weekly short fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. They say that ignorance is bliss, and if you're like me, you probably always respond, bullcrap. I want to know, dammit. Give me that red pill and shut up. River Monsters is on. Okay, but are you sure that you really want to know? Really sure? You really think that knowing is better? Dad, come on, get out of the way. He's fishing for alligator gar. I'm just saying, sometimes it's better to just live and let live. Dad, it's fine, really. Just wait for a commercial break or something. That ripped old dude just hooked one. You're adopted. The fish is going to be visible very soon. What? Really? Dad, I'm, I'm 26. Why wait till now to tell me? I'm also gay. What? What do you mean you're gay? No, you're not. You're... <sighs> Son, your mother has a penis. Turtle, turtle, turtle. I've just got the mother of all turtles. Wait, uh, what? The mother of all turtles. Are you... Is this some kind of sick joke? Mom doesn't have a... She's a hermaphrodite. Her penis is tucked up near her thigh. Oh, Jesus, Dad. You know what? Okay, I don't have to know where it is. N- no, I know. I'm just saying. It's huge, though. Oh, God, Dad. Come on. I didn't... I don't care how big it is. Well, it's just that it's the biggest I've ever seen. Oh, for crying out loud, Dad. And son, I've seen a ton of penises in my day. Oh, enough already, Dad. Literally hundreds and hundreds just in the past few years. Dad, enough. Ah, but your mother. I knew the moment I laid eyes on her penis that she was the one. The belle of the ball your mother was. (laughs) Anyways, I'll let you get back to your show. Yep, on this week's show, TMI, too much information. Take this data and shove it. I want my age of innocence back. And we're starting things off with a little Drabble news. From gizmodo.com. Scientists are saying that the Triceratops, the species of dinosaur that Billy, the blue Power Ranger, regularly rides into combat, never actually existed. It's all been just one big lie. Hey, don't shoot the messenger, folks. The scientists determined to destroy all of our childhoods and everything that we hold dear this time are John Scanella and Jack Horner, who said that the bones of what we thought all this time belonged to Triceratops actually belonged to some piece of crap they call a Taurosaurus. The Triceratops is actually just a younger version of the same species. The duo says that based on skeletal remains, there is a clear transition from Triceratops into Taurosaurus as the animals grew older. Noted mathematician and Triceratops expert Jeff Goldblum, however, disagrees. That is one big pile of shit. Now folks, I don't say this too often, but F you, science. Get a life, man. Quit taking away our favorite dinosaurs and planets. 
Torosaurus? <laughs> Come on. Uh, this just in. Scientists have recently determined that there was no such thing as the Homo erectus. It never existed. Apparently it was just a juvenile Angela Lansbury-saurus. But we can't find any juvenile Torosaurus bones, the paleontologists say. Oh yeah? Well, maybe that has something to do with, I don't know, all the f***ing meteors and f***ing earthquakes and f***ing tidal waves that were going on. Maybe they're at the bottom of the ocean somewhere. Maybe underneath a mountain or a massive ice shelf. Maybe you should go ask your dad. I hear he's seen a ton of bones in his day, literally hundreds and hundreds. But I warn you, science, you might not be ready for what he has to tell you. And that's the news. Drabble time. Drabble, drabble, drabble. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble comes to us from Dee Brown, and it's called The Holy Babble Drabble. Dee has, for the last eight years, enjoyed a successful career as a writer of unpublished fiction and unproduced screenplays. Yet she's looking forward to making a lateral move and earning actual money at some point. She says that as an out-agnostic, she's distressed at the disrespectful attitudes and language of other non-theists, behavior that, if directed at any group other than theists, would never be tolerated. That and recent blog discussions of the God equation gave her the idea for this drabble. Dee recently relocated from Old Virginia to Denver, Colorado, because living at sea level had ceased to be a challenge. Hypoxia is quite bracing. Meg calibrated her instruments, repeated her observations, rechecked her math. She'd made no mistake. There, in the equation that covered the blackboard, was proof of God's existence. Her discovery would revolutionize all of science. She thought about her professors, most of them atheists who loved to snicker about the antics of what they called the religious hoi polloi over coffee and bagels. I'll never get my doctorate with this, she grumbled and grabbed the eraser. Then she realized how she could defend her thesis. She would title it Proof of the Existence of the Sky Fairy and his son, the Zombie Wizard. Well, our feature story this week is A Funeral Song for a Ventriloquist by Douglas F. Warwick. You might remember Doug from the weird messed up story of his that we ran back in April's episode 160 called Behind Eye, A History. Doug is a writer of short fiction, predominantly about nasty monsters and things that don't happen in real life. He's hard at work writing his first novel, as well as co-editing Up Jumped the Devil, an anthology of short horror stories inspired by Nick Cave songs due out from PS Publishing. He's quite fond of punk rock, nightmare imagery, cigarette smoke, the Muppets, vodka, Zen Buddhism, and his wife. He's not fond of very much else. The story is read to you by Mike Boris, a voice actor living in Indianapolis, Indiana. His comfortable resonant tone was once heard on WFYI-FM 90.1, Indy's public radio station, as well as a brief stint on the Top 40 FM morning show. He may be off the air these days, but he's still behind the mic. He reads for numerous fiction podcasts, including Drabblecast B-Sides, and was recently nominated for a 2010 Sofanaut Award in the category of Best Narration for his contributions to the Hugo Award-winning Starship Sofa podcast. Check Mike out at mikeborisaudio.com. So, without further ado, 
we bring you Funeral Song for a Ventriloquist by Douglas F. Warwick. When the ventriloquist died, his will dictated that all of his puppets be burned. And so they were. In the middle of the dusty wasteland behind his tent, well away from the other members of the shanty town. They were piled on top of one another, still in their fancy show clothes with their molded hair falsely combed and parted, and their limbs thrown to strange configurations that limbs do not reach by natural means. Their limbs, or let us say, the surrogate limbs they possessed in place of real ones, were not full of muscles and blood, and were not anchored by bones, but stuffed with cotton and weighted with sawdust, and so they could be forced into whatever configuration. Wherever they fell, they did so according to their own nature. The pile of dolls did nothing that piles of dolls do not or cannot do. However, the ventriloquist was a fine craftsman, much envied by those few peers with whom he had correspondence, and his puppets were masterfully made. This story is tempted to tell that they look like real people, with flesh and blood and bones to anchor them, people who could walk and dance and manipulate the muscles of their faces so that their eyes narrowed and their mouths manufactured false grins, the same as other people, only crushed into tiny, awkward, toddler bodies. But if this story told that, this would be a false story, and it has no desire to abuse the trust of the empty ether to which it's told. So the truth is this, the dead man's dolls did not look like living things, and so their closeness to living things is not the reason it frightened the funeral party to see their limbs kinked into terrible angles. The truth is that the dolls looked dead, the scattered shells of things that once lived, cruel things that had disguised themselves, however poorly, as human beings. They looked like things that, while attempting to build their human bodies, had confused children and adults, and had therefore crammed youth and age into a single shape. The reason that the funeral party was frightened, before the night bloomed like an oil spill over the place where the sun used to be, and the flames explored the puppets layer by blistering layer, was that they had always been suspicious of the impostors that the ventriloquist harbored. But before, the puppets had sat on his lap, and their spines had seemed straight and strong, and their arms and legs had hung more or less where they were supposed to hang. Now, tangled up in themselves with their eyes staring at nothing and their mouths just barely open, it was as though all of the old suspicions were confirmed. Behold the monsters in abominable repose, laid out and laid open before you. So while the good people of the shantytown stood in a circle and sang funeral songs, the mound of dolls was doused in gasoline and immolated with, at its bottom, the body of the late and lamented ventriloquist. Oh, goodness, this story has forgotten something in its own telling. It reverses, for the sake of its good listener, the mindless void, the mouths of the puppets hanging open. It is said, among those who do not know any truths and are damned by arrogance and ignorance, that ventriloquists make puppets appear to speak. The educated and informed will tell you, or perhaps they will hold their secrets, the educated and informed often do, that it is easy to open a puppet's mouth, do nothing. Its jaw will fall open and its words will spill out soundlessly. A puppet's words infect. They taint. They do this without ever sounding like a thing, without the listener realizing they have been spoken. A true ventriloquist, as those who are educated and informed may or may not choose to tell you, 
is an adept at the art of keeping those mouths shut. And so those unfortunates who stared into the burning pile of wooden faces and cotton limbs and glass eyes also saw the peaking teeth of the condemned, saw their painted tongues curl and burn, and because there was no hand inside their head to shut their mouths, almost heard the secrets they were trying to tell. Their sleep would thereafter be infrequent, and nightmares would take root behind their eyelids, never to remember it in the daylight, except for a clutching, desperate feeling in their solar plexus, a rat trapped and starved between their ribs, which lingered for hours after they shot awake like cobras from a basket, tangled in their sweaty sheets. A confession. This story began with a lie. The story wanted very much to end here, and so it spun a fabrication within its very second sentence. But this is not the end of this story, as ashamed as it may be to admit it. This is the rest of this story, told into the void as all stories are, until their end, whether they like it or not. It is said that the ventriloquist was deathly afraid of nuclear war, and that, with a mere token of his obscene fortune, he built a bomb shelter in a secret place beneath his tent and he brought a mattress into it and stocked it with brandy and cigars and newspapers and TV dinners, even though he did not own a TV. It is further said that there, in that reinforced concrete cell, where the dead man slept and ate and drank and smoked and read decade-old obituaries, was kept the ventriloquist's last doll and his best. This story ends with that doll and the girl who climbed the rusty ladder into the shelter to ask it a question. The girl was 17 and curious. She grew up with stories about the ventriloquist's funeral, nursed on them as a baby, and was never successfully weaned. She knew of the tangled arms and crooked legs of the man-child monsters that burned that night, revealed for what they were. She knew that the people of the shantytown slept in fits, eaten from the inside by their starving rats. She knew that the puppets told a secret, and that nobody remembered what it was. All of that happened many years ago, and still the shantytown stood, tents and boxes, and still it was haunted by the decades-old pyre that once burned in its windy, dusty outskirts, and she wanted to know why. She found the place where the ventriloquist's tent used to stand, and she found the heavy wooden door beneath the sand, and she pulled on the big brass ring set into its surface until her elbow joints popped, and finally the door shuddered, and the ground spat it out, and the cold airlessness of the shelter gusted up and pushed her hair away from her face. Then she climbed the ladder down. The doll was reading obituaries in the dark and picking at a TV dinner. It was a doll made of flesh and anchored with bones, all of it real, no stuffing and sawdust for the ventriloquist's masterpiece. It was as tall as a man, and it had glass eyes that rolled in their sockets like the wake-me-up, let-me-sleep baby doll she had when she was very small and a little plastic row of teeth behind its lips. Its skin was sallow, green, somehow preserved on the precipice of rot and sewn together with mint-flavored dental floss. She could smell it, false freshness. She gasped when she saw it. It gasped when it saw her. After a long moment, she said, You are the ventriloquist's last puppet? The doll shifted its rump on the mattress, its eyes jiggled in its head. It said, I am that. The girl took a few steps towards the doll. She took them quickly, with her hands clasped in front of her breasts, and made her spine straight. She said, I am so pleased to meet you. 
I have wanted to see you for a long time. The doll looked confused. It cocked its head at her and gnawed on its lip with its plastic teeth. It said, You don't say. I do say, said the girl and smiled. The doll smelled sweet and moved like a newborn calf, shaky and wet and unsecure. She felt close to it. She wanted very much to be its mother. She said, I'm sure we can be friends. I want to talk to you about something. One thing, actually. But I'm sure it will take forever to talk about, and it will lead to many other things, and by the end of it, I'm sure we'll have no trouble talking about anything we like. We're friends now, you and I. We are, said the doll. We are, said the girl. Well then, said the doll, what is the one thing you want to talk to me about? I hope I don't seem too brash, said the girl. She leaned forward and propped her elbows on her knees. But, come on, just say it, silly girl. Okay. What was the secret that the puppets told the town while they burned? The doll sighed and with one patchwork hand rubbed at its patchwork scalp. Where it rubbed, the loosening dental floss stitches stretched and its flesh patches split apart. And when it stopped rubbing, they slid back together. Why do you want to know that old thing? said the doll. Because, said the girl, and tried to think of a reason. It had never occurred to her that she might be asked this. She couldn't fill her lungs all the way down here, breathing air that wasn't really air, sweating through her blouse even though the shelter was midnight cold. Because it's the secret that makes the town what it is. It's the secret that makes me what I am. It's been around as long as I've been alive, and it's shaped every step I've ever taken. And I deserve to at least know what it is, don't I? The doll turned its head as though it meant to stare at her, but its eyes swayed and shook in different directions, and she couldn't imagine that it could see it all. It said, The secret that the puppets told is made of ugly words spelled with ageless letters. The letters are as old as the stars and as insane. There are gods in those letters, and the secret is the higher gods those letters worship. It turned its head away, and she was glad. I won't tell you that secret, it said, but I will tell you another. It put its hand on the girl's knee, and she no longer felt like the doll's mother. She felt like the village must have felt before the fires were lit, trying to wrap their minds around the geometry of those cotton-stuffed limbs. She saw the crust of the TV dinner mashed potatoes beneath the doll's stolen fingernails and wondered, for the first time, how the ventriloquist came to find the parts he used to make his last best puppet. The doll said, I will start my secret with a question. How old are you? The 17-year-old girl told it that she was 17 years old. Then the doll said, And have you ever sung a requiem? You mean a funeral song? said the girl. She suddenly wanted very much to be away from this place, up the ladder and back into the shanty town to hide in her mother's tent and find a way to amputate this moment from her memory. Yes, I've sung those. I sing them with my friends sometimes. We do it to scare each other. We've never been to any funerals. Okay, said the doll, and it continued to talk because it didn't have a hand inside its head to shut its mouth. Here is my secret. It is meant to be a funeral song, but I can't sing, so I won't try. The ventriloquist was 17, and he wanted to know secrets. So he learned some, 
Then the ventriloquist was 25, and he wanted to make his own secrets. So he made some. And then, do you want to know what happened? The girl nodded, even though she was not sure she did want to know. Then the ventriloquist was 58, and he wanted to speak the language of secrets. So, said the doll, he died. The girl blinked. She waited for a long time, but the doll's lips were sealed over its plastic teeth. It fingered the big brass buttons sewn onto its chest. That's it? She said. No, said the doll. The other part is this. You will grow, and you will have children, and you will not be seventeen. This seventeen-year-old you will die, and it will no longer exist, and you will think that you have created something wonderful. You will think that you are permanent, that there is purpose to your life, that some kind of God, any kind of God, has gilded your ambitions. And then you, all of you, will die, and you will have no purpose, and you won't be permanent, and your ambitions will be rust. That's all right, said the girl. Her voice shook like the doll's eyes, clattered like its teeth. You don't have to tell me any more. Gods said the doll, because it wasn't all right, and it did have to tell her more. Because the ventriloquist's hands were ash long ago, blown across the world, and they couldn't creep inside the doll to pinch its lips shut. Gods only exist in the secrets you can't remember. They aren't for you. You must die, and you never get to know. I must live, and I have to know, so... So, said the girl, who had begun to cry and did not really understand why. So, said the doll, and let go of her knee. It slumped over itself, and its voice was low and bitter and spun through with webs of deep defeat. What's the point, for you, of learning the secret? What is the point, for me, of dying? This story is sorely tempted to tell of how the girl outsmarted the doll, how she convinced it, finally and irrefutably, of the undying value of human endeavor, of immortality, how she learned the secret of the burning puppets, the ventriloquist's requiem, and became a hero to her species. How deeply this story desires to proceed that way, dear emptiness, its only audience. It doesn't. The story continues, instead, like this. The girl said nothing. She tried. She made noises with her lips and forced air through her throat in choked puffs. She thought of her mother and tried to call her face to mind, tried to do anything to block the pictures that spread like a fungus in her head. Behold the monster in repose, laid out and laid open before you. Go home, said the doll, and curled its knees up to its chest. You make me very sad. So the girl, seventeen and no longer curious, climbed the ladder, dropped the heavy wooden door over the shelter and the ventriloquist's last best doll, and went home. She grew up, she had children, she was not permanent, she had no purpose, and her ambitions turned to rust. In the dark, the doll ate TV dinners with its fingers, and read obituaries it had already memorized for people already forgotten by the rest of the world and contemplated all the wondrous, magical, lonely secrets. 
And so this story is told. And having been told to the lovely, lifeless miasma of the big black nobody, it floats into the same and continues floating. And no matter how much it wishes for a different ending, no matter how much it yearns for permanence, no matter how this story screams and weeps and mourns itself, its destiny is the same. To dissolve forgotten, if ever known at all. our story hope you enjoyed hankering for that blue pill now we're just full of the warm fuzzies this week aren't we no triceratops no purpose to life makes you wonder if the sky fairy even hears our prayers doesn't it i love the story's retake on the role of ventriloquists not entertainers opening the mouths of the puppets but as guardians keeping their mouths shut talking puppets sure are freaky huh if you enjoyed this week's story, consider donating to the Drabblecast to help us keep the wind in our sails, bringing you diverse, weird fiction from diverse, weird authors each and every week. You can throw us a one-time donation in any amount, or you can subscribe automatically for five or ten bucks a month, if you've got the means. You can find all three options off of our main page at Drabblecast.org. We really, really, really appreciate it. And we really, really, really appreciate this week's kick-ass donor of the week. Samantha Brandt. Samantha lives in Connecticut with two cats. She spends her weekdays applying her ever-so-useful creative writing degree to an action-packed data entry job, and her weekends hiking, taking photographs, hitting up the flea market circuit, and or reading to excess. That is, when she's not busy fighting off the zombies. Thanks, Samantha. Good luck with the undead. Remember, it's all about the headshots. All right, it's that time of the week. The winner of our ongoing weekly 100-character story contest. This week, the honor goes to Uncreated One, with this one right here. Nope, your mother was wrong. A messy room does not breed rats. I've been under your bed for weeks, and I can't even get a date. <laughs> Dems to breaks. Before we go, I know we've got a fairly big UK following out there. If you're in the Fakenham area, you should head down to the Dancing Goat Coffee and Books to see this week's awesome episode artist, Caroline Parkinson's show, October 6th through November 2nd, Monday through Saturday, 10 to 4. I really like Caroline's stuff. She also did the episode art for episode 163, once a month on a Sunday, with the girl feeding the bunyip. I'd go to her show, if I wasn't all the way over here in the colonies. Drop by if you can. All right, weirdos, that's it for this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Uncommercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up the show. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Our staff is made up of associate editor Matthew Bay, a zombie wizard in the sky, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that we're friends now, you and I. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. 
they will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.